Hello, everybody. You are listening to the Race V Fem Forest podcast, your source of empowering words, advice, and tips on entering and leveling up in the tech, space, and capital industry from none other than women who have walked that walk. You will also get a peek into their world by learning more about their field and their latest projects. Coming up, your weekly dose of inspiration. Jean-Vierve Levey, originally from Haiti, is the principal founder and CEO of AgriLedger. Jean-Vierve led AgriLedger's collaboration with Haiti's Ministry of Commerce and Industry to deliver a distributed ledger technology pilot sponsored by the World Bank. The project went live in May 2020, allowing Haitian fruit farmers, customers, and families to reap the benefits of fair prices and improved food security. She has more than 25 years' experience dealing with large corporations and banks in financial supply chain optimization, and her background is in corporate and institutional banking. Jean-Vierre was nominated by the Financial Times to the Top 100 BAME in UK Technology in 2019, and BAME stands for Black, Asian, and Minority Ethnic, and was named a winner of the Computer Weekly 2020 Women in Software. She was also one of the top five finalists for Quizney's Female Founders in Fintech 2019. She is a vice chair of Tech UK's Distributed Ledger Technologies Working Group, which provides strategic direction for all UK activities related to DLT and is an inaugural member of the advisory group for the Estonian government's e-residency initiative. She has spoken on emerging technologies at numerous high-profile conferences around the world. Jean-Vierre, welcome on our show. I'm very happy to have you on the show and talk about your mission to revolutionize agriculture supply and value chains around the world and for you to take us through your journey into entrepreneurship and emerging technologies. So let's jump right into it. You've had very senior positions in large financial institutions and corporations such as HP, GE, Royal Bank of Scotland and the Chase Manhattan Bank for over 25 years and then decided to set up a firm that acts as an agriculture-focused blockchain system provider. What did that process look like for you? What made you decide to take on a rather entrepreneurial endeavor versus the corporate path? Uh, Selma, thank you so much for having me. This is something I've actually been thinking a lot about lately. Uh, the journey, actually, there's one piece missing in there, which was identrust. I left RBS, and I had the... I had a project running at RBS and I wanted to have digital identity for one of my clients. And I recalled Identrust, so I called the CEO, Karen Windle, which is a formidable woman. I mean, her background is amazing. If you and anyone has a chance to look at what she's done in terms of identity, Identrust was the first company to actually provide fully qualified digital identity to the world. And they had over 100 firms at some point uh, working with them. And I went to her and said, well, you know, you provide the solution for RBS. We have a client who needs digital signature. Could we talk? And we got the project going. And then she turned around and she said, you know, kiddo, I'm tired of having you at the table on the other side from me because you've done it at HP, you've done it at GE, and now you're doing it to me at RBS again. How about you come and work for me? And at that point, I decided this was 
something which was very interesting to me because it was taking me into this disruptive technology that I knew nothing about. And uh, well, and that's not true. I knew quite a bit about, but I wanted to get into the bottom of it, what was going on. And so I took this role as the global relationship person for Identrust. And then I thought they were a bigger company than they were. Ended up, it was a company of 80 people. So it was a startup, which was bought up by HID. So it felt different. And at that point, I said, you know what, why not? So it was easy to then make that entrepreneurial jump. But also what I realized is that in all of my organization before, I was really the entrepreneur. My role was always to find the solutions and to sell those to the team, to the management, and get the money for doing the changes that were necessary. I mean, at GE, I worked on the swift messaging for reporting, which actually won my boss the award. And it was his only Swift award that he won while GE was the premier company for putting Swift. So when I called them and I said, hey, I hear you won. And so where's my credit? He says, you snooze, you lose. (laughs) (laughs) That actually helped me in understanding also that my next journey, I needed to own my solution. I needed to own my outcomes. So for many of my organization previously, I saved them money. I saved them work. I changed things internally, but that was all internal. It was never known to the public. And I don't know that the change had effect on population at large. When I learned about blockchain, and that was with Identrust, the first week she says, hey, can you go to South Africa? I said, sure, because I love traveling. She says, um, they're doing something called blockchain. You might want to look into it. So I started reading. And when I got there, I actually met R3 when there were seven people. I also got to meet Stellar Foundation Jed. And he had just come out of his rift with Ripple. And all of that, that was just a new thing in working with Barclays and all these people that I got to meet. And I got to then spend what I call the best summer of my life because I got to meet everyone in London. That was a very small community. So this is 2015, very small community in the blockchain. So it's about two years, maybe three years old now. It's now people are starting to think about how can you use this? Some were talking about the financial, but many of us were talking around how can you use it from a standpoint of tracking information, evidencing information and coming from banking and treasury, people don't understand that banking and treasury is really not about money. It's about proving that something has happened and therefore money flows. So for me, it was, wow, this is a system that removes a lot of the checks and double checks that we have to do. So if we can implement this, then we can look at a better way to move. But then my old roles kind of taught me that in order to sell something, you need to make sure that everybody understands what's in it for them. And when we talk about technology, a lot of time people do not understand how it's going to affect their lives. So as such, there's resistance, there's miscomprehension. Also, when you implement change, they are losers and they are winners. And many a time, the losers are the ones which were using the broken system to actually persevere. So you end up with creating an imbalance. And unless you have clearly outlined what you're actually doing, you then have challenges. And for me, I then thought, what are my passion? I love food. <laughs> you know, 
I love food. There's very few things I don't want to taste. It's just to say that I will eat yucky food. But you never know. Also, something can be very smelly, like durian, and taste wonderful. So you always have to give past certain sense and sometimes sense of fear. And so I thought, if I'm going to be explaining this technology to people, we all eat. If you don't eat, you're getting fed through tubes in the hospital, and you're in a coma. So therefore, you don't have to love food the same way I do, but you understand what it is to have it, to waste it, to not have it, and to pay too much for it, or not know where it comes from. So if you start looking at those aspects, you then have a connection. And we all also want to make sure that no one is maligne and that everyone has an opportunity. And if nothing else, the pandemic has shown us the two most important professions in the world are agriculture, farming, and education, teachers. For many years, we took that to be for granted. So if we think about how our teachers are not well compensated, how some teachers in many parts of the world and even in the U.S. have to have second jobs in order to make ends meet. They love teaching, but they can't survive on the salaries they have been given. And now with the pandemic, with all these parents have to dealing with their children for almost a year, I hope that we will make the change that are necessary to make sure these people are well compensated. And that's the same thing with farming. So if we think that, not think, if we look at the fact that 80% of the world is made up of smallholder farmers, and as per FAO and the World Bank, they feed, depending on the numbers, 60-70% of the world population. If they do not have the way to be getting to substance, and if they continue to feel that they have no purpose and they are taking their lives, as is unfortunate, and it's not, it's not an India-only problem, it's a global problem then we need to make sure that they're fairly compensated. And we all know that we have come to realize that data, information, is what makes things flow. So if they can produce the data to demonstrate what they have done and be also able to actually have ownership further down the value chain because they are guaranteed that they're going to get paid, then we can get to a more equitable world that doesn't mean that there are other people who are not going to be participatory, call them middlemen or whatever, but there are people who are going to stand in the middle of the transaction between the consumer and the farmer. But we should have the number that is necessary to actually make the transaction flow easy, not over people who have no roles, whose only purpose is speculation. They need to be taken out of the equation. And this is what we're trying to do with our solution. Thank you for taking us through that. And we'll further dive into AgriLedger in a bit as well. But going back to your journey, would you describe the defining moment as at one point being this entrepreneur taking on these high profile projects within these large companies, but not really feeling or experiencing an actual societal impact, which led you to explore other entrepreneurial endeavors? I would say it was, and but also I don't think that 25 years ago we could dream to actually be an entrepreneur, to actually start our own firm. I think that technology has really helped in the sense that 
you now can work with a small team because you can use the tools to communicate, to create the outputs that are necessary. 25 years ago, uh, you know, you, you needed a team of 100 to do something. Now you can do it probably with a team of 10, the same, the same work. So for me, it was one, the realization that I could make it happen on my own and I didn't no longer needed that support. And the second one is, I think, is the lure of the fact that you can always get investment or you can get revenue. And through that, you can fund your work. So how did that transition occur from Iden Trust to AgriLedger? So from Iden Trust, I didn't jump all the way to AgriLedger first. A friend of mine got in touch with me in October in 2015, and his name is Karthik. Karthik and I and his wife, I had known his wife when I was at HP. Kartik and I have had this bond forever. And he calls me and he says, hey, kiddo, what do you know about blockchain? I go, <laughs> and started telling him. And he said, well, I'm starting this startup called Cripsy in India. Would you be interested in joining the journey? Are you be CEO? I'll be cool. We have a chairman. We have the CTO. They're coming in from this work that they had done, which is a company called YPay Cash. And basically, now they want to jump on the bandwagon. So it was the first blockchain company actually in India. Unfortunately, the team was in India. I was in London. So you have a five-hour difference. I get up in the morning, and what I was expecting wasn't done. And what they were expecting from me was not me saying, why didn't you do this? And in reality, what I think about it is that I should have never been CEO. I probably should have been given sort of like a CMO role or something like that to really bring, because I had the contacts to bring in people, but because I was given such a role, I wanted certain responses. And after five months, I walked away because I actually bought AgriLedger to them on the plate and they said no. Because they wanted to do something in finance. And I said, I'm sorry, in my point of view, you're chasing something that other people are chasing, which are in Europe already. You're based out of India. Your costs are not going to be so much different. So I would suggest we do something different. We look different. Let's not look at the financial services. And they said, no, they weren't interested. So I said, okay, bye-bye. So I went and did AgriLedger because by that time I had seen what you could do with a small team because I was used, you know, RBS, I had a team of 400 people, you know, not directly, but I had a big team of 400 people directing. I had 10 people that I was directing personally. So I was used in getting things done with a big group. And then I got to Identrust and it was 40 people globally. And I was like, oh, we can get a lot done with very little. And then went to Cripsy. And again, it was a smaller amount of people. So therefore, I kind of went, well, I can go do it myself. I don't need to, you know, because with Cripsy, they didn't want it. I, I had the comfort zone now to go and do it because I had actually called my team, my ex-team to come to the hackathon with me. And so we went to the hackathon already. We had a meeting. We knew what we were going to go for. And so it made it easy. Now, the journey has not been easy because one of the fundamental difference between corporate world, corporate life and startup life is the governance that exists. And how do you, you know, the communication is very different also. In a startup, you don't always have the time to communicate effectively because you are battling so many fires at the same time and you're wearing many hats. 
in the corporate world, it's also accepted that people come in with a certain time on that you watch to see what they're doing. And if they're not performing, you say, thank you very much, goodbye. In the startup world, because we're starting with so few people, we come in with this fear that if we get rid of someone, we either have to take the job, the rule ourselves, or we're going to have a problem replacing them. So a lot of time, I think one deals with the issue longer. And also not many people have had the experience. And unless they have actually been in an environment where timing, you know, you basically deliver on deliverable, not on time, that also can be a challenge because they're used to a nine to five. This is not a nine to five. It's a nine to nine. But if between 12 and 6, you have nothing to do or you're able to block your schedule, you take your time and you do your own thing. But it could be also that 12 to 6 gets totally shredded because an emergency pops up. So I think that we are getting more people who are playing in the startup world, but it is still not what it should be. So, As prominent. Yeah. What would you say is the biggest difference in terms of exercising entrepreneurial traits in a corporate environment versus a startup environment? Um, in the startup environment, the idea floating is done to a capitalist. So if you can spin the story well, somebody will write a check. And many a time you spin, you have to spin the story without any of the risk factors. And, you know, really you can't talk about what might go wrong. So you just need to paint that beautiful picture and why it's you who can do it. Versus entrepreneurial in a corporate world is really about laying down what is the pathway we can go, where the challenge is, who are those that we need to bring from behind? Who are those that we need to get rid of? So the conversation is much more frank and open and honest. And that I think is the benefit of the two. And because you have the governance and you have the support function, then you are able to actually make the move. One of the things is that I was able to do in all my organizations was to bring consultants. And when I was at GE, no one could bring in temporary I bought in temporary, I bought in consultant because I was able to design the story, draw the story to my management and saying, these are the choices. I can't do it, but I can instruct somebody to do. And then we get rid of them when we're done. And that's the purpose of consultancy to actually get a piece of work done rather than bring somebody permanent that you eventually have to find a new role for. So with that, I think that I have actually, through those learning, learned how to bring in people for the role and then disengage versus in the startup world, you can't, the consultants, people come in with consultancy with the same mindset if they're going to consult for a big company. So they want big money and that's not possible because you have to respect certain budget or you have to try and think how do you fit this person into your organization in a full a full capacity and i think that's the the biggest challenge what advice would you give someone considering moving from a corporate world into starting their own firm i say go for it i mean the resources are there but what you need to do is to really start thinking how comfortable are you with having to sort of work every day? If you don't feel comfortable to where you feel that cert certain days are sacred or certain times are sacred, you're going to have to lose that rigidity. 
you're going to have to get over it in order to make your business succeed because time does not wait for no man or woman, as they say. So you just got to make it happen. Also, you don't want to, you don't need to be an expert at everything, but you do need to be aware of everything because if it's your back who's on, on the side for that, so your finance, your legal, all those things are things that you need to keep in mind in your product. But your product also, you need to be ready to pivot when you need to. You need to understand what are, you know, you don't need to have a full view of how you're going to make money, but you need to have a few idea of how you're going to make money and how you're going to be profitable and how you're going to put food on your table and also the table of your partners or and or the people who are working with you on the project. If we go back a bit further in your career trajectory, how did your passion for finance and technology come about? Where did that start for you? It was, again, by luck. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to say to you, I have a passion for learning. I have always been very curious. And so what happened was that I was working, I actually have a degree in biochemistry. I worked in research doing taxol with ovarian cancer. I also worked implementing, I always liked shiny new things. So uh, in the 90s, early 90s, I did the implementation of this system for pathology, which allowed you to bring in your slides, have your slides sent from anywhere in the world to Sloan Kettering, see what kind of cancer you had, and if the doctors decided that it was rare enough, you'd get invited and we'd follow through the whole surgery. It was dictated, typed into a network system where in the early 90s, can you believe this? It was getting beamed to the floor. The report could actually go electronic to the floor and it also did all the financial billing and everything else. So this had images and I got to work with this amazing doctor, Dr. Rosai, who was the head of pathology. So he was a technologist in ways and also very much of a scientist. So we bought in, it was like bringing in all these different things, imaging, scanning, and all those things to really be able to push the envelope. Unfortunately, the precursor to the Obamacare, which was the Clinton medical dreams, <laughs> I didn't say anything else, started really getting hospitals to start thinking about what they were spending and what they were wasting. So which meant the doctor no longer had the same power. It was now the administrators, which were getting more power because you didn't know if you were going to get that much funding anymore. So therefore you need to start counting the pennies. Makes sense. So that kind of led me to say, you know what, later for this whole scientific career, and I jumped off and got I thought I wanted to go into technology and I worked for a consulting firm where I ended up working at MTV Network for about a year, looking at networking solutions for CRM for different parts of the business and really expanding the use of technology to understand better what was Novell. You know, at the time it was Novell Networks. And uh, that led me to, to actually think that I did like technology, but I didn't want to be a technologist. I wanted to be the whisperer between the technologist and the business. So really explaining that information. And that then took me on a journey where I started working for the bank, then went the bank sent me to HP. And I just kept really being that whisperer of 
looking at the possibility, what is the business problem that we're trying to solve? And how can, what are the technology pieces, both hardware or software that need to be deployed in order to change this problem? And then also making sure that everyone along that journey or that transaction understands what they're gaining and what they're losing by using this new way of doing things. So for you, it was interesting to work on those problems for optimizing purposes and also to create value for stakeholders. It's because also I was able to, throughout my career, create experiments because that's the reality of it. I wasn't doing... So in biochemistry, what you do is you mix things up and you assume that you're going to get something. And sometimes you get exactly what you were looking for, but you have to redo it again to make sure you're getting the same thing, that it's repeatable. Sometimes you get something very different than you expected. So you need to figure out what's happening in the black box in that aspect that you don't understand to then be able to understand why you always come up with the same answer or the varied answers. So I think I actually approach technology and business in the same way and saying, this is the challenge. This is what I expect to have. Oh, that's not what I got. What is happening in between, which is causing? And if the result that I need to have is X, what do I need to actually put in between to get to X? Or am I happy to live with Y? Because Y is better. So that's really how I've approached. And I actually was doing a lot of thinking. I think that that makes me a product manager. I am very much of, before I ran projects, so very much of a project manager, but also a product manager in the sense that I then look and say, must I have this today? Or am I willing to live with something less? And if I live with something less, when do I fix the problem? But as long as I understand what my risks are, and so it's always a risk-based system. So, And this was something that I learned very well at RBS, because when you were working in a bank which had been affected by 2008, and you were having the regulators overlooking, everything had to have that lens of risk assessment on it. So the working with the Prodco on understanding all the different risks and counterparty involved in it became very important. So for me, I think that my work now, I still carry that aspect with it. Mm -hmm. I also see a thread in a sense that you love to solve problems since you were basically an external consultant working with various clients on these challenging projects and problem statements. It really intrigued you to stay and continue to work in these industries. And that's also what you extended into transitioning into entrepreneurship and setting up your own firm. Because you want to own that full process and see your creativity, the solution or that thing that you've worked on in a lab or the many variations of the formula actually being implemented. It's a full process. The, imp the implementation has always been very key for me. And sometimes the implementation is not like so... I am very much of like a versioning person. So version one, this is what I've learned. These are these are the the places where I put little band-aids and the band-aid may end up being there forever and you just live with the scab there. 
or you have to fix it and you have to address it. The other thing also that I found that it gave me is the ability. So working corporate, there's two things you have to learn is how to ring fence your money for the project. So really understanding clearly what are you spending on. And it's very funny. Somebody asked me if I knew what the debt of the company was. And I came up with the number off the top of my head. And <laughs> Because that's the way I think, you know, so I, when I look, I don't like doing Excel. I can do Excel. I, I should probably say it in a different way. Looking at a financial, like a very complex financial model, I won't design it. I'm not very good designer with those kind of things, but I can look at one and see what's missing, or I can look at one and see how to manipulate the numbers to be able to get where I want to go. And then the other thing is understanding my obligations is something that I have very clear. So I can sort of recite in my head and come up. I basically came up with the number and it was the right number, but it had to be, but somebody had to show it on paper. And when you showed it on paper, it equaled what I thought was my obligation. So those are different aspects of um, the process. Like, so I want somebody who's, you know, I want somebody who's a financial whiz at my side to take care of things. I don't want to have to take care of it myself. <laughs> and I think that I even that I need. So one of the, the key is as a CEO, I need to also move myself away from that. So I need to bring in someone who is a good product person that he, she and I, that person and I can have those conversations and then they execute. And sometimes I expect them to actually tell me, no, it's not going to work the way you're thinking about it. And I'm going to push. I'm going to go, why not? And basically, but I think that's the challenge of a startup is the number of people that you can have. And then the other thing is that if I look at the environment, you will have, you have a lot of young people with great ideas, but not with the experience of actually knowing what will work or what will not work. So some of them will get very lucky in that the use case that they are pursuing is niche enough that somebody will buy them out. And however, that doesn't mean that the solution complete is completely what it needs to be. And that is something that corporate organization do go in with that knowledge. The other pieces, though, however, you then have people like myself, which are starting the journey in our 50s. And we have the experience coming in, which means that we own oh, the network. Yeah. And the, yeah, but the problem is the network sometimes the people I want to bring in want the money. And it's not like, you know, you can get your mate. When you're 30 years old, everybody thinks 30000 is a lot of money. And so what happens is that you have this misconception that you bring somebody in at like at 70000 somebody who actually makes $200,000. Uh, well, I mean, um, the perks and the benefits long-term for a startup, and that's the risk you're taking, could be larger than the 200000 they're taking right now, which is more of a stable thing so it's really yep and are they wrong i'm not sure that they're wrong exactly because it's about yeah but yeah there's no guarantee mostly with the work that i do i cannot look at somebody in the eyes and say we're going to get bought out mm -hmm. true but that's the risk you're taking right i mean that's the risk of a startup <laughs> and they won't take it and believe me the people who will take it it's not you know you might get lucky i have gotten lucky at time but many a time uh, it wanes in terms of uh, people's um, passion 
in all of those aspects. So being able to say, and what I've also learned is you need to make sure that people are able to live comfortably. Mm -hmm. Because they need to take care of their families as well, right? That's, you have to give them that peace of mind, which makes complete sense. And, and it's like, I've actually found that stock options are worthless. Yeah. And, and what about equity? Same thing. Equity. So if I give you equity in your company, which may not get bought out for 10 years, what have you gotten? Equity, piece of paper. That's risk and reward. Yeah. yeah. So <laughs> that reward, though, demands that you stay. So you need to basically vet into the company. And let's say you leave with your vesting. You actually, the way it works is that you always have the option to buy out that person before they leave. So which means you may not even see the upside. So you've given up on salary in order to get an upside. Four or five years from now, you have a better opportunity because what the reality is people are getting um, headhunted from startups to go into corporate because there is a role that they need to be fulfilled in the corporate world and they want that individual there. So therefore, you've just basically lost for five years on salary and your risk reward is zero at the end. Maybe you got a job at a corporate which is paying you four times what you were making, but still for those four or five years of uh, tightening the belt, you don't have much. So I'm trying to see it from the other side. And I think there needs to be a realization that people should be rewarded adequately because if not, they are, which is something I've seen, people are worried about what's going to happen with their mortgage, with their life and their family. And then they stop. Especially now during COVID, right? Very difficult times. It's, they stop performing. During COVID, there is an opportunity to take, to get a lot of people cheap. But according to, so if one is to listen to the Esther yesterday, the budget from the UK, they expect by 2022, mid-2022, an upsurge. So which means if you're getting somebody today and you go and you get them, you lose them because somebody is going to come and get them. So you really need to create that 360 relationship in the right way of trust. And it's unfortunate the financial trust is also very necessary. I mean, it's very... It's a prerequisite, basically. Yeah, it is. But it's a prerequisite that, let's say, some people say, well, you can live with that risk. You can put up with that because at the end of the day, you're the one who's going to benefit. But they don't have that ability to benefit from it. So if you were to give our audience some advice or tips on entering, be it in the finance industry, the technology field, or entrepreneurship, what would that be? Actually, one of the things that I found really useful was uh, there's a group that I, I joined. It's not a group. It's actually a program. It's called the Startup Leadership Program, and it's run in over 100 cities in the world. And it isn't for your company. It's for you as a founder, as an individual. And then it's a really a community that is created thereafter. So someone was asking me if I had the support, and I didn't think about it until later that, yes, I do through that group. What it is is a small cohort, and part of the ethos is they take no equity. It's not about your team. It's not about your company. Whatever you're doing right now, they teach you how to pitch it, how to understand 
understand, you know, show your risk. It goes through HR. And then each CEO becomes a CEO of a class also. So you have to run the class. And when I did my, I didn't realize that also included feeding the class. So you had to pick when the food was coming in, who was coming in, and what food, you know, there were choices of food. And I, of course, was the one who basically broke the thing because I made, I was like, no more pizza. I want Buddha bowls. <laughs> Oh, I was about to say, did you get sushi? Oh, I wish they had sushi because it was coming. But I mean, it was fish and it was rice. It was Buddha bowls. Um, So I wanted something different. But what I actually picked up from that was to how to be a leader of an organization and how to roll with the punches. And I would recommend to people, I don't, it was an accelerator in a way, but an accelerator for me as an individual. And some individual will go through the program and stop the entrepreneurship in terms of creating their own companies, but they continue the entrepreneurship journey by really looking at either supporting as VC. And it's also about a give back. So as a result of this, my pledge is to be mentoring people. So I mentor others who are looking to create their own entrepreneurial journey by really helping them question the decisions that they're making. So one of the things about mentorship also that has to, or advising, advising is about giving people choices that they may not have thought about. So I recommend people to find an advisor and don't find somebody who's yesing you, who says, oh, everything you're doing is wonderful, but actually somebody who's saying to you, have you thought about this? This could be a mistake. And you can decide, "Mm, you know what, this is a mistake I'm willing to take. Or this is a mistake that it's going to cost me too much. So yes, I'm going to listen to your advice. And those kind of programs, so going to a program which is accelerating you for creating your tech or creating your solution is sometimes just too focused on delivering for them an outcome. So any program which is sort of looking to grow you as an individual, not only for today, but for tomorrow, other program to look at. So that would be my advice to people is make sure you find something which helps you grow. Mostly if you're new to entrepreneurship, like I've actually done this to a couple of friends. A friend of mine was working in healthcare and she was working for a very big healthcare company and doing very well. But she had also created this great project and this great great product called Naturally Tribal. And what it is, it's made by the women of Essen in Nigeria. And this is many of those women who were part of the Boko Haram that is at that region. And she actually has done done tremendous things like helping them. They used to bend down. So a lot of them had back problems. It was the bend down to pick up the jojo bead. And what would happen is that many a time they would get bitten by snakes. And so they have snake bites, which could be fatal. So she created a sort of broom that they can actually do. And the broom has this thing in there, this coil, so that if there's a snake, the snake gets caught in the coil. And then when they open the box, you just dump the beads out to do the, the butter, to make the butter with it. And so she is working exclusively with these ladies. And then the butter is bought and she does this product in the UK, which is completely natural, vegan, and it's health and beauty product. 
Amazing. Another problem solver. She saw a problem she wanted to solve. Yes. <laughs> and you know what? It actually started from her son. She's a chemist. She's, so her name is Shalom Lloyd. And Shalom is amazing. She studied, she speaks Russian fluently. She studied in Russia. She has her degrees in chemistry and all of those. And she had twins and her son had eczema as a baby. And then she remembered the creams that were being applied when she was a kid in Nigeria. So she decided to cook a batch of things, natural products and ingredients to cure the baby. And that's how she started the company. And she's doing tremendously well. And these are scrubs and creams and all these things for skincare, which are amazing because not only are they good for you, good for environment, but they're also helping these women be independent and successful. And so when she and I were talking, I encouraged her to do the startup leadership program. And that actually gave her the push that allowed her to go into her entrepreneurial journey. That's amazing. She learned more about her qualities and what she can do and how she can fine tune her capabilities to start that journey, basically. Exactly. And I think that's what's important for people to understand. So it really doesn't matter what you want to do if you want to go in finance, if you want to go in technology. I think technology is necessary in everything now. But, you know, we don't think of social media as technology but it is technology. So you need to be able to understand how do you get your message out? How do you curate your message and to whom you're targeting your message? So that again is some sort of technology, even if what you're selling is around the, the corner. And what has happened is with the lockdown, stores or businesses which were not digital have had to become digital. And that means also understanding your cybersecurity and all those things. So anyone, even if you want to build a shoe, you need to understand how you're going to build your shoe and market it, not only to a, a store, but also direct to market and how you're going to create that buzz about yourself. And it's the, really uh, the storytelling more and also. Correct. So it's marketing, it's e-commerce, meaning optimizing your sales channels through digital acceleration. It's social media, but it's also product development. And to me, I really like to, to push people to start thinking of how to integrate technology into your product development to potentially scale your problem solving and to create more value. A lot of the times when people think of technologies, for those that are not entrenched in these fields like you and I, the first that comes to their minds is social media and basic digital transformation, but it's so much more and it can be of larger impact to us if we get a grasp of its fundamentals and know how to create that convergence. Mm -hmm. But I'm really excited for these developments around these emerging technologies, the adoption of them, and basically what the future holds for us with regards to that. Yes. I think we're going to have to see more of that in the future because what happens... It's inevitable, right? It, it's inevitable mostly because your marketing aspect is no longer just about... It's not no longer about telling the customer what it is. You also need to be able to let them get to it, to feel it, to touch it, and also... How do you also connect with them emotionally? And if I'm connecting with you emotionally, but you can't get access to my product, or I don't have a view very well of what availability is, I then create a frustration with you as a customer because you're not able to fulfill that wish that you've had. So I think that um, there's a lot more opportunity. And I think everyone needs to realize that their product needs to have a digital life also. 
So I would love to continue to talk about your exciting firm, AgriLedger, and your view on the emerging technologies field. Tell us a bit more about AgriLedger. What is its value proposition? So with AgriLedger, it started because when I uncovered blockchain technology, I really saw the potential for what we call straight through processing and also the asset digitization. And when you digitize the asset, being able to do an asset escrow, an asset transfer from one asset class to the other. So if we take food, you digitize the knowledge of that food and you allow somebody to carry it. And so you then can actually allow the producer or the creator of that asset to take it further to market so that they actually be it the wholesale market or the retail market, but they are participatory of a greater return than what they would have had if they're selling it to somebody before. So that asset ownership is key. When I looked at that aspect, because that was the finance person in me looking at the asset creation, asset transfer, escrows, and liquidations, I realized that if I tried to explain that to the common person, they would not be able to understand exactly what I was talking to or relate to it. And I thought in technology, in order to get people to understand technology, you need to get them to relate to something that they are part of and that they do and that is necessary for their lives. If we look, anything around travel in blockchain has not taken off very much. Why? Because there's only a few people who travel. Not they, you know, I mean, it's not unusual in the state to meet people who have not gone further than 20 miles from their house because they had no reason. Everything is there. If you live in places such as Haiti or Africa, you may never have the means to actually look to get out of your country. So travel is a very difficult thing. It has value, but it's a difficult thing to do. And also the stakeholders which are involved in the industry have a type grid. So therefore, they have to actually believe that there's a need for change for them to enact that change. You as a small player coming in, trying to do that change, they're going to crush you. So I thought food was a place to actually go with this because uh, one, I had seen the Provenance project at the time they had, that was 2016. So they had issued the paper on the fish, I think it was salmon or carp that they were tracking. And what I had thought is parts that were missing were the financial aspect and also the benefit to the farmer. So yes, you were tracing the food so that we knew it what it was in terms of the asset, but what were the benefits to each person along the line and how could you actually enhance the data that was being shared with those people so that they could trust that what they got was. And working through that, we worked through with Chinese company, which wanted us to digitize the assets. So I actually drew out in early 2018, what I would call a DeFi model, which is revaling what's going on out there, but not one that I think has value as of yet to try to look at. But then when the Haiti government government in early 2018 issued a tender. And one of the things I suggest to everyone, accept all LinkedIn requests. See what the person has to offer and say, thank you very much if you're not interested. But you never know because that's how I found out about this tender. Somebody got in touch with me. I connected. They said, are you interested? And I, they were looking specifically for a blockchain solution. And I got to kick out the big boys. I won't name names now, but basically, as one of my advisors did, I smooth foodies the big boys. <laughs> 
So from that aspect, it is very important to actually look at opportunities which may come in from places that you don't expect them. Like distributed servers didn't come in till about 10, 15 years ago. Now we have distributed ledgers and we have the ability through encryption to create more trust and also making sure, you know, a lot of people talk about data, data ownership, data transfer, data security. You can, with those kind of systems, create that aspect. And this is really where for AgriLedger, I thought food security and food safety are two big issues that we all grapple with. So safety is food poisoning. What is not known is a number of children under the age of five, which are dying from food poisoning in places like Asia and Africa. We don't see it as much in the West because we have regulatory aspects which protect us from bad food reaching our table. But we've all at some point gotten sick from bad food. So that's not a pain that one wants to have uh, for long. And then food security, COVID has really uncovered this issue where six out of 10 individuals in the U.S. is food insecure. So let's not imagine what is happening in those places where food insecurity was always a problem already. So FAO, I listened to a program back in July, and they were expecting almost like, I'd say, seven to tenfold in terms of negative impact of COVID on food security. And that has unfortunately come to pass because if people are not able to work, I mean, then they have to rely on donation. And unfortunately, also what has happened is that, and it's a double-edged sword. You know, we talk about food waste, but do you want to, because you want to stop waste, move food that you're not sure about how it's been kept to those who need it? Because you can make them sick at that point. So there are still requirements. So this whole food waste movement needs to also be assuring that the food is still at its prime. Because if you're going to make somebody sick from it, it's a zero-sum game. So this is where blockchain technology does come in. So I'm not attacking the food waste aspect as of yet. I think it's a byproduct of what we do. And I would rather have a partner come in and do that with me because having worked with some of the biggest companies in the world, I'm not in favor of creating mammoths companies. I really dislike when somebody says, oh, this company is doing very well because they have 100 people working for them. Did they need 100? Could 30 do it? And then the 25 others that they need be from some other company? And, you know, it allows... It's not always a measure of success, basically. Yeah, but it is still a measure that is being touted. A company with a lot of employees is seen as successful. No, it, it doesn't need to be. So I think that maybe we need to start having different metrics to say, how many people do you employ through your company, but not direct employees? Because especially if you look at the financing part as yes, well. Yes, exactly. Asset lights. Yes. <laughs> and so in terms of your target market, what target group are you addressing? So in terms of target groups, I think it's really, it's two parts. One is the governments, but not governments really to be the one to buy from me, but the one to understand the need and work with me in the deployment. I found that the Haitian, that the Haitian experience really solidified this for me because if you can get them to understand, so I'm very big on the RACI model, so responsible, accountable, consulted, and informed. So when you go at certain high level, 
you're going to be consulting or informing government, but there's going to be certain tasks where they're going to be responsible and accountable. And having that responsibility and accountability very well defined helps. The other target customer for me, even though my real customer is the producer and the consumer because they're the ones who are benefiting and everybody else in between, myself included, is a service provider toward that goal. So I can also see where I have a service provider or a manufacturer with the right ethos. And it's very important. The ethos has to be about being sustainable by allowing those who are providing, not looking to make money on for themselves by crushing the little guy at the bottom but being fair and equitable so if you are doing being able to quantify what you're doing what your costs are for providing that service is very important to then say why are you taking that much more out of the profit and then the customer at the end being able to have that trust that not only are you doing what is necessary to keep them safe but you're also keeping safe those people who are producing agroledger enables trust and transparency in the ecosystem by providing services and tools for digital identity and traceability for those that are not familiar with these important attributes of the blockchain technology Can you explain in concrete terms what value you'd be creating for these various stakeholders involved? So in terms of the identity aspect, it allows everyone which has participated in the transaction to be recognized as having participated in that transaction. So that aspect could be an individual aspect or it could be for firm access. So it demonstrates that you have done what you were supposed to have done. And it then allows not the supply, but the value chain to be fair, equitable. And I don't, I've actually stopped using transparent. I've started using translucent because transparency is something which is not everyone. And this is the fundamental difference. Right now, you can go into Bitcoin, you can see all the addresses that coin has happened. And I was reading an article which says that could be the downfall of Bitcoin also because a dirty Bitcoin will be shone and may have less value than a clean Bitcoin. But this here is about creating information that allows the right decisions to be made. So it could be a decision to say this is now beyond term, so therefore it has to be discarded. So that asset loses value as a result. You know, food which is past its, uh, its timing, should not be consumed. But what was actually for me the defining moment when I looked at the project from the World Bank in Haiti was we always think about tracing the life cycle of something, but we forget about the life cycle of the money, of the payment back, and being able to make that faster, more reliable, and much more transparent or translucent is also key. You then end up getting Because at the end, everybody's doing the work for money. That's why you do it for a reward and making sure that the reward is distributed fairly with speed and equitably is also very important. So it wasn't enough to have just the two things separate. What is the current phase AgroLedger is in? Any particular strategies you are currently working on? In terms of the next phase for us is really, so we have done our base application and it's working in Haiti. I mean, I look at it, I'm very proud of what we've done. And, you know, somebody had said to me that they thought I was in love with my tech. I am in love with my tech because, you know, it's a beautiful baby. 
But now we have to grow the baby. We have to allow it to walk. We have to give it the education that it needs. And that means also what is very clear is that I need to get the entity capitalized in the right way to now be able to get the financial services partners to not see the risk to me. So from a funding standpoint, what we have realized is we've, we've created what I call is a good solution for countries which do not have the resources. And by resources, I mean the financial resources. We've been very smart about how to use space volumes, you know, like not to bore people in terms of the notes. But then we also understand that if we want to work with corporate or manufacturers, or people who want to have their own USB, we needed a much more flexible system. So things that you can add different participants in. And the next thing is also providing funding because one of the key aspects that it took me, it was an aha moment because I can now tell where and how much a producer can make and where it's going to be. So that life cycle now is transparent. I make it possible for an investor to invest into his farming and knowing that the returns are guaranteed or knowing when the returns are going to be and in creating to the smart contract the ability to repay that loan or repay that investment ahead of time. You know, you don't distribute the fund to the individual for the individual to then send to the investor through the smart contract in the agreement. You then repatriate the, the funding where it's supposed to be with the agreement. And this is where it starts getting interesting because now you have a digitized asset which can then go on a secondary market to actually be used. So these are the places where we want to take it. And the finance part of me now wants to play more because I know enough about those things. And however, building that technology properly, we also know how expensive it is. And what we forget a lot of time when we're building, we go, oh, I need this amount for technology, but we forget what we need for the business that needs to support the technology. So at this point, by my calculation, tech for about 18 months, 1.5, and the people about 1.5, and that's including all the comms and PR that have to, you know, you have to do targeted PR in order to then create also the business development. So we're looking at about 3 million USD as what is needed. We have already built the prototype. And what we've actually done is we've also elevated the product to say AgriLedger will continue to be that vertical around agriculture, but we can then also use that same technology for manufacturing, for... Replicated in other sectors, basically. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Exactly. You start moving it into other sectors and you start... Because when we were looking at this, it was my aha moment was last May. Somebody asked me to participate in a call and I realized that with COVID, nobody, and even now, people are still not admitting that food security is an issue. They kind of talk about it, but they're not looking at ways to address it. And I think blockchain would be a great way of addressing it. So for us, we had to focus on the 90, but we designed the system with the flexibility, even in the open source, to add those components to it, to then be able, because what happens is that having a solution which does not look to really fit the 360 view is then going to create a challenge in its implementation and its adoption. So my focus in the next six to nine months is twofold, actually threefold. One, 
getting the investment or the capital in whichever form it needs to be to cover those. Second one is really taking the Haiti project to the next phase, assuring adoption, assuring the facilitation of that adoption, because there are certain parts of the application that I know do not function as they should, because there was no input of the knowledge that is necessary. So the industrial engineering piece is missing. So we need people to work on that. And the third part is really about how to start working with partners for delivering this and how to get this. Because my mission is not really about just the agriculture. It's how do you create better trust so that you then have time for leisure, because if you don't have to worry about something, then you can have more time to enjoy your life and to really be with your family. So if nothing else, even though we are all sick and tired of being at home, many people have gone back to sitting at the table together to eat instead of everyone flying by and taking a plate on their own. So people are sitting down at the table and having conversation. So how do you continue that is by being able to have trust system that give you information that you do not need to check and double check and worry about. So that's really, for me, key. How do we expand? I don't know that I really want to become a software house, even though I'm a software as a service, but I want to target and to be able to target to where fundamentally what we're doing has benefit, not only for the producers, but also those who are receiving the goods. Mm-hmm. In terms of the vision and mission of AgriLedger, mid to long term, what impact do you seek to have? What we're looking to do with AgriLedger is to continue that work, which is to me is very important. But we want to expand into other parts where we create the trust between producer and also the receiving customer, consumer. And what we're actually looking to is to create a vehicle whereby that technology can be used not only by us, so we can white label it and we can create the partnership which are necessary. So for me, key to it also is a social contract that we create with those who we are working with and those who are receiving or using our application. So in ways, that is really our focus. And the mission is really creating technology which uplifts humankind rather than basically creates more strife. Because a lot of people, you know, I mean, it was uncanny to me when people started getting really wired about their data getting available on WhatsApp and what we're going to, they're going to do about it. And you don't want your customers to start being so distracted and really creating that trust is what's going to be important. And it's the trust in creating trust in systems because unfortunately we have to rely on them. Correct. Very well. So as we just mentioned in the introduction, you were also the vice chair of Distributed Ledger Technologies Working Group, which again provides strategic direction for all UK activities related to DLT. In terms of the next developments around distributed ledger technologies, what should we be excited about? Excited and scared would be my words. The central bank digital currencies, or CBDC as they're being lovely called, understanding what that means and then also understanding what that's going to mean in terms of digital wallets. It is very important for advocate in privacy to get involved in this early because now, obviously, you're going to have the central bank involved 
And there's two flavors. There's what you call the retail, which means the money comes to us and now our money is guaranteed by the central bank. Or it could be wholesale where they are doing investment into financial institution who then take that down to fiat. A lot of people shun from fiat, but one thing about fiat is that it has an amenity. And for those who don't understand what fiat is, fiat is money. So if I give you $20, it's between you and I that I'm giving you $20. So you don't have to report that $20. I may ask you to give me a receipt because I need to report it. But that connection to you receiving that 20 is not completely made. Versus when you're using a digital wallet, that footprint is going to happen. It's going to show from my wallet to your wallet. And it is pseudo-anonymous many a time. So blockchain, Bitcoin is pseudo-anonymous. You can always go through the IP to find out exactly pinpoint where the person who received it has been, even if they try to mask things. So this new technology could be amazing in that it actually recognizes that many of us are fully digital. Uh, we use our credit card, we use our bank apps and that means we no longer need to go to atm so that's kind of the demise of the atm but do we really want to have the demise of cash when cash also is something that protect us so if we think of marginalized groups that could mean politically they could get marginalized to where now you create a strife where they are unable to buy, to buy food because if you can't get money and you can't pay somebody for your food, you then are going to starve. And that's something we've seen in many countries. I mean, the issue that's going on in Yemen is very much around that. It, it's atrocious what's happening there. But imagine that now a political party who wants to target their a constituency that they don't agree to through that digital mechanism they can and let's not fool ourselves. The governors of central bank are normally not independent from whomever is in power. And unfortunately, as human beings, we still continue to be cruel and we will do what is necessary to vindicate our opponents. So that's something I think people should really be paying attention to. 180 countries are looking at that. So China, Europe, America, there will be certain governance to allow to communication to be able to have and to create the the movements to allowing for change the ch you know negative change not to take hold but one has to also pay attention because you don't know what the impact is going to be and then the other big thing which has been talked about right now is NFT, which is non-fungible tokens being used by artists to be able to sort of uh, track their own goods. NFT was something that I had talked about, thought about, but didn't call it NFT. When an artist is selling his pieces and being able to relate it back to it between himself and his customer by putting in an identifier, which brings in, but that also brings in the issues of if you're doing a big print and how do you, you know, like the original, because the Picasso didn't make money just from the Picasso. Picasso made money from the prints that were created of his art. So how do you then create that copy that those of us who don't have millions or billions can put 
in our house. So I think that we're going to see an evolution in the NFT space. And then also what's called DeFi, which is decentralized finance. Right now, decentralized finance to me is smelling and looking very much like the pre-ICO days, the ICO days, a free-for-all. People have figured out how to make money from it. And those who have figured it out are just basically raking it in. But there is a lack of regulatory oversight. And that regulatory oversight is also what's going to make it come crashing. Because there's going to be somebody who doesn't understand it, put too much money in there, loses because it's a Ponzi scheme, as far as I'm concerned, last in, least amount to be made. And they're going to make it come crashing because they're going to go and complain and say, I lost my money, which then means the regulators are going to come smacking in the same way as they did with the ICO world, where they really disseminated what were so with the ICO, what were good projects got lost because they were looking at the ICO as the funding mechanism. And when, well, the distrust was created because fundamentally you were creating a stock for a company which didn't have anything behind it yet. And then you had to then decide which one am I going to support the stock or building the company. So it would be better if the ICO were more like an investment. So giving the ability to, and this is where they got caught. These were uneducated investors who did not understand their risk. And the promises that were made to them were outrageous. You never go and say, I'm going to make you a 20x on a stock. I'm going to work to develop a product which is going to be successful in market and therefore will bring value to your shares. But what people were focusing was the ICO itself became the product rather than product that it was backing. And all the money that needed to go in ended up being you're pumping your own stock instead of pumping the product that you need to do. And that's really what caused the issue were the boasting which were going on and the fact that no product was delivered. And at some point, you fell. There have been projects which have uh, survived, but it's because they decided they were not going to pump up the ICO, but they were going to pump up the product. Or there were some which went with traditional ways of, of funding, and as such, had individuals who understood the risk of, okay, I'm putting this money in, I may not get it back, but I am also going to do what's needed to support you. And crowdfunding is not about a support mechanism. Crowdfunding is about giving you cash with a lot of people who do not understand exactly what is going to happen at the end. What do you think is needed to further help accelerate the growth and maturity of DLT technologies into various sectors? So one of the things I've gotten involved with is actually working with Consensus Academy. And last year in July, I was like, for some reason late on my WhatsApp. And I saw this thing that they were looking, it was actually June, and they were looking for women to give scholarships to, to learn blockchain technology. And it's a boot camp, so it's really for technical developers already, so people who are in technology, women in technology, to give them that boost in understanding blockchain. So we put a program, I was, I said, oh, I have a couple I'd like to have. And they said, well, can you take 10? 
I said, sure. Uh, and I said, can you take 20? I said, okay. So did 20, 10 in Haiti and 10 in South Africa. What I learned though from the Haiti program was it was important to have the right partner. So I worked with this partner, this woman called Joanne Bounani, and she is the CEO of a company called Gekka, which is Gestion Etude. Basically, they do accounting and auditing, financial and also technology audits, so system audits for everyone from the banks, financial institutions, and also the central bank. And this is a firm which has been led by three women. And what she did wasn't just to sort of encapsulate and grow those girls. She even also arranged for training in AML, communication, and self-awareness. So that by the time they took the course, it's more about the 360 to allow them to have the knowledge and the expertise that's needed. And she allowed them to come into her office so they would have a space that they could come and study as a group. So really creating a cohort and communication among themselves to be able to deliver. So I think it's important, mostly when we talk about women, to sort of give them that opportunity. So working with consensus, it's about for the developers, because I think if you don't have people who understand in technology what the technology is about, then you've lost the plot. I'm not sure that they will all basically go into it, but now they have an opportunity to go into it. And I hope that they do. And the more people we can get with that knowledge, the more the grassroots effort can happen. And they can go home and sit down with their family and explain how that can change the modicum. And when their government make changes, which then imply using this technology, they can understand what it's all about. But as we're creating this new opportunity for financial stability in these countries, we also need to make sure that we also take the male component. So what I'm actually looking at also is working with other partners such as 101 Blockchain to create enterprise blockchain knowledge. What do you need to know and have in your toolkit to work with a company to help your company make decisions as to what they need to do in blockchain? And it's important to think that it is not just about the technologies. It's the person who does the communication, the business development person, the lawyer, the compliance individual, and the operations need to understand what this technology is about. So there is a lot of opportunity there to actually educate and create. It's like 20, 15 years ago, nobody knew anything about AI and data. We were, you know, it was this little microcosm of special people who knew it. And this is the same thing that I see in blockchain technology or DLT. It's the opportunity for more people to participate. And because of the way this technology works in terms of data transfer and information transfer, it is very important to understand the commercial aspect. So a technologist is not going to understand the commercial aspect. So you need those people in the organization who have that knowledge. So knowledge around the technology, product development, and then getting the product to market. Exactly. Okay, great. Jean-Vierve, I believe we've covered quite a bit with regards to emerging technologies mm -hmm. and your fascinating career trajectory. And I'm looking forward to sharing these insights with our audience. Thank you. If people simply want to stay up to date with your activities and insights, connect or reach out, where can they find you? 
So in terms of the company, I've been very good. It's everything is at AgriLedger. And then for me, it's Jean-Vierre Lavelle. I haven't taken the plunge of fixing my Twitter. Maybe because I haven't been so active lately, I might take that, uh, that uh, aspect. So it's, mine is Gino in London. And so I also, I'm very more, much more prolific on LinkedIn. And I am, so I, there's only one more Jean-Vierre Lavelle and she is in Canada and she's a nurse. So if I'm talking nursing, ain't me. <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting. So there is someone yes. that has the same name. Yes, yes. No, but it's been a really a great pleasure to have a, such a lovely conversation with you. It's, uh, I do hope that your audience is able to learn. And as I say, part of what I am open to, and that could be part of what I did in terms of study, is I'm always very open to discussing and to teaching people. That's amazing, Javier. Thank you so much for being with us today. I truly appreciate it. All the best with AgriLedger and, of course, your other endeavors. Thank you very much. My dear podcast listeners, thank you so much for taking the time to listen to this episode today. Make sure to share it with someone who you think will find it valuable as well. And if you want to have your weekly dose of inspiration, make sure to subscribe here or follow our LinkedIn and Twitter page for updates. For more information on the firm behind this podcast, please visit www.raisev.com. Stay safe, stay healthy, and until next time.